This morning our gospel lesson is going to come from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. This is a passage we all know so well, the passage of the Good Samaritan. So I invite you to stand as you're able, in body or in spirit, for our gospel lesson found in Luke 25, I'm sorry, Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. An expert of the law stood to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given me the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to vindicate himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and took him off, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came upon him. When he saw him, he was moved with compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, treating them with oil and wine. Then he put, on his, put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I'll repay you whatever you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, Go and do likewise. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You know, we're, we're in this series right now we're calling Sunday School Stories. We're looking at these passages of Scripture that we know so well. These passages that have transcended religion or transcend church. Um, we've looked at David and Goliath. If you're a college football fan, you know yesterday David had a real big day. A bunch of Davids beat a bunch of Goliaths. I would not want to be the pastor of a Methodist church in College Station, Texas today. You know, so David and Goliath, we know that one. We know these stories. And today is another story that we know well that transcends religion even. The story of the Good Samaritan. This is a story we all know so well. It goes beyond, like I said, religion. If you are an, have an RV, there's an RV community called Good Sam, where RV folks kind of take care of each other and look after each other. Uh, there was a TV show last year about a good doctor named Samantha. Good Sam. There's a movie coming out with Sylvester Stallone, where I'm guessing he beats up bad guys, and it's called The Samaritan. You know, so these things transcend culture. If you see somebody in need, somebody on the side of the road, or help someone, and in the course of you helping them, something happens, there is a liability shield that many states have for you where you cannot be sued for helping someone in distress. That loss, that, that waiver, that, that, that protection is called the Good Samaritan laws. The, this concept of a Good Samaritan transcends religion. It's just part of the cultural ether, something we all kind of know about or might be somewhat familiar with, with helping others out. You're a Good Samaritan. So we know this story. 
And we're going to look at it a little bit different. But we're, we're going to get to the end of it. Now, we're going to look at this story hopefully in a way that you never really thought about before. But before we get to the, you know, my question is always what's happening. What, what are we really wanting to learn here? What is God really trying to teach us in this passage? So before we get to the Good Samaritan, just a couple of interesting things about this text first. First, we see that, uh, you know, he says a lawyer comes to test him. And y'all, I'm not going there. Lawyer jokes are too easy, and I'm not going to make them. We're all thinking them. We all know they're funny. I'm not going to make eye contact with lawyers in our church now because that's too easy. They know we want to make fun of them, but we're not going to do that, are we, friends, because we're better than that. Well, we're really not, but, you know, on, on with the text. So. But the lawyer comes to Jesus. This is the teacher of the law. And he asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, he says, and Jesus says, what's the law? So Jesus goes back to what the law says. He answers what the, what the law says. And notice he says, you're to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. That's called the fourfold test. That right there means you're to love God with every fiber of your being. That there's not a single part of your life, there's not a single part of your existence, there's not a single part of who you are that you should hide from God or that you should not be seeking to love God with. We are not just called to love God with our heart in worship. We're called to love God with our minds, with what we think and how we read, how we develop our mind. We're not just called to love God with our soul, with what we feel. We're called to love God with our strength, with how we serve. There's a great story about him. This happened in the Middle Ages, I believe it was. A prince uh, I think from Russia, is marrying a princess from uh, Greece or is vice versa. Somebody from Russia is marrying somebody from Greece. And the Greek Orthodox Church at that point was a pacifist church. I guess because Greece got beaten all the wars, so it's easier just to not have an army, I reckon. But, uh, they, they, and so the Russian prince, before he could marry the Greek princess, had to join the Greek church, which meant he was no longer allowed to carry a sword. It meant his soldiers were no longer allowed to carry swords. So before he could marry the princess, he had to be baptized in this church. Well, the whole thing that he was a prince and led an army was a problem, right? So when he was baptized into this Greek church, he was submerged. But on the way down, he held his arm and his sword out of the water. He had an unbaptized arm that allowed him to continue to be a soldier, an unbaptized arm. What are the unbaptized arms in our life? What are the unbaptized arms in our life that we refuse to give to Jesus, that we don't want to give over to him, that we hold on to just a little bit longer? We're called to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That means all of us. That means we're not allowed to have unbaptized arms. We give him our everything. That's what it means to truly love God. We see in this passage, it says that he was going down to Jericho. Now, if you, if you look on the map, Jericho is north of Jerusalem. So typically, if you go north, what are you doing? You're going up. If you're going south, what are you doing? You're going down. Yet he's going down to somewhere that's north. What's that about? Well, no matter where you were in Israel, if you went to Jerusalem, you were going up. 
If you went from Jerusalem anywhere else, you went down. Why is that? Because Jerusalem was the home of Mount Zion, the temple. I lift my eyes to the hills. From whence does my help come? My help it cometh in the name of the Lord. You go up to Jerusalem. So this signified he was leaving the holy city and going about his business. And on the way, it says, he was come upon, beat up by robbers. And then the scripture says, by chance, so and came upon him. And the Hebrew there, by chance, isn't like, hey, hey, you well, that was dumb luck. The Hebrew there actually implies this was God's doing. This was not dumb luck that these folks came upon him, but God was at work at this. God made this happen. God orchestrated this. God was at work in this moment. And yes, he was beat up and left for dead, but because God is good, the priest comes by, the Levite comes by, and the Samaritan comes by. Well, so the priest comes up, and here, it says in the text, he just walked over the other side of the road. Like, he wasn't even playing around. He saw, he was like, uh-uh, check please, I'm out. He walked clear on the other side of the road, didn't pay him any attention. This is the Levite, which would have been an apprentice of a priest, basically. It says, the way the Hebrew reads, basically, it's like he goes up to him and kind of kicks him, kind of pokes him with a stick. What's happening? Okay, he's still living. He goes over the other side of the road and walks away. Why do they do this? Most scholars think that the significance of this was the fact that these were religious men, and they were going, on, they were going to perform religious duty in the temple. And... Um, and if, you, if they had touched someone or something that was dead, they would have been an impure. Yet, didn't the text that the lawyer just quoted say that the ultimate form of loving God is to then love your neighbor? So these priests and Levites perhaps missed the heart of the law because they were looking at the wrong part of the law. And then we get the Samaritan. And the Samaritan, he not only... You, have, you, you contrast the priest and Levite who knew the heart of the law was to help this man. They go the other way. They almost like they look away. This Samaritan, he takes the man and puts him on his own donkey. He takes him to the inn and gives the innkeeper his own money. He pours his own wine, his own oil on the Samaritan. So we see the two religious men that knew better ignore the wounded man, yet the Samaritan, as the text said, shows mercy and takes his own treasure, his own stuff, his own money, his own donkey to serve this Jew. So we see in that that he is keeping that fourfold test of loving God with his mind, heart, soul, strength, and heart. Let's talk about Samaritans. Like we know a little bit about Samaritans. But let's talk about let's talk about how this how this all fits together. Okay, so from your Old Testament history, we we're talking in Sunday school about going to Mississippi College and taking the Bible. And uh, as much as you love the Bible, an eight o'clock Bible class at MC wasn't always the most fun. No offense if any of my old teachers are watching, but uh, so in the in the Old Testament, you know, they came out with the Exodus. Moses led them out. Then you had Joshua. They conquered the land. After Joshua, we go into Judges. Judges, just straight up anarchy. It's just, it's just craziness. It's just anarchy. And so you'll have these individual leaders that will rise up and for a moment lead the people. But then when they die, it goes back to anarchy. 
And it said the judges, everyone does what's right in their own sight. That, that's judges. After judges, the people go to Samuel, who was a prophet, and says, okay, we need a king. Like, we need, our, we need a king here. So Samuel anoints Saul as the first king. And he's aight. He's fine. But he loses his way towards the end. After Saul, there's David. David is the great king of Israel. David is the one that is the platonic ideal of a king. He's a great king. After David, you have Solomon. Solomon, politically, economically, militarily, he's actually a better king than his daddy. Like Solomon, in terms of just pure politics, was probably the best king Israel ever had. But towards the end of his life, began to really ride the people too hard, demand too much taxes, impose too much military on them, like really lost his way morally and politically towards the end of his life. After Solomon dies, his son takes over, and basically he says this to the people, you thought daddy was bad, you ain't seen nothing yet. And at that point, the 12 tribes of Israel, they have a separation your northern, tw- your northern ten tribes separate from your southern two tribes. Your northern ten tribes separate, and they call themselves the northern kingdom or the kingdom of Israel. The southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they are the southern kingdom, and they call themselves Judah. So you have a separation. No longer is there a united kingdom, but there's a divided kingdom. Northern kingdom Israel, southern kingdom Judah. Israel And all their history doesn't have a single king who followed God. Not a single one. Judah had a couple, Josiah, Hezekiah, but most of them did evil as well. Eventually, Assyria comes into town, destroys the northern kingdom, takes off most of their young men and women, and ships them off to other parts of the Assyrian empire. Then Assyria moves in a bunch of Gentiles, or non-Jews, back to Israel. Eventually, Judah is destroyed by Babylon. That's where Daniel and all that happens. And eventually after that, when the exile's over, the Jews in Babylon is where the word Judah was shortened to Jew. The Jews come back to Jerusalem and to Galilee. So you have now in Israel at this point, you have the Jews in Jerusalem. In the southern part, you have the Jews around Galilee. But between Galilee and the north, And Jerusalem in the center, there's this middle section where the Assyrians had taken the Jews who were there and shipped them off, brought in Gentiles. And now these Jews and Gentiles intermarried, and they had children, offspring, and these folk lived around the capital of the northern kingdom, which was called Samaria. That's where the Samaritans came from. They were the descendants of the Jews that Assyria did not ship off and the Gentiles that that Assyria shipped in. And in Jesus' day, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. Like, Jesus told the story for a Jewish audience to hear and the fact that a Samaritan was the hero, was insane. A Samaritan can't be a hero. They're the worst. They're not as pure as we are. They're heretics. They don't believe right. They don't come worship at the temple. They worship on their pagan mountains up there in the northern part. The Samaritans are the worst. How can one of them be a hero? 
That would be like calling it the good rebel fan or the good bulldog. The good Democrat. Ooh. The good Republican. That's not possible. They're terrible people. How can you say they're good? That's how shocking it was to the Jews of that day. A Samaritan? There's no way a Samaritan can be a good guy. They're the worst. And you're saying they're going to be the hero of the story? You've lost your dadgum mind, Jesus. There's no way a Samaritan can be a good person. Jesus literally picked the person they despised the most and made them the hero. But here's the, here's the thing, y'all. As much as the Jews hated the Samaritans, Samaritans hated them back just as much because the, the Jews may have thought the Samaritans were um, impure or were heretics. The Samaritans thought, huh, those Jews, think, those Jews think they're better than we are. They think we're just a bunch of stupid rednecks. They think we're just a bunch of country bumpkins, a bunch of, bunch of redneck imbeciles. <laughs> and now look at them. <laughs> they got what was coming, didn't they? Yeah, they did. They got uh-huh, one, of them, one of them good for nothing, uppity folk from Jerusalem. <laughs> he got what was coming. Look at him. On the side of the road there. How's your high horse now, buddy? Yeah, how's it doing now? Yeah, how you feeling now? You're up in your big bad self up there in Jerusalem. We can't nobody bother you. Yeah, you come down to where we live, you get beat up. Yeah, serves you right, doesn't it? That's what you get. That's what you deserve for thinking you're better than we are. For thinking you're smarter than us and better than us and holier than us. You got what was coming. You got what you deserve. That's how we still think, don't we? You don't believe me, log on Facebook later today. (laughs) They got what's coming to them. We're tempted to glory in the defeats of our enemies. We're tempted to say they finally got what was coming to them. Yeah. They finally got what they deserve. And it, it feels good, doesn't it? Yeah. If we're going to be honest about it, it feels good, doesn't it? For them, whoever they are, to finally get what was coming to them. That's how the Samaritans would have felt when something would happen to the Jews. And yet, what did this Samaritan do? He took his own oil and his own wine, and he bandaged up the wounds of this fellow. He took his own donkey and put this one who was his enemy on this donkey and took him to the inn, where there he took his own money and said, if you pay anything else more, I will pay it. And Jesus said, who is the neighbor? It's the one who showed mercy. 
There's a reason why I think Jesus tells us to love our neighbors. Frankly, y'all, there's a reason why I preach so much about us loving our neighbor. It's because we live in an age right now we don't feel like we're supposed to do that. There's the siren song in this moment of contempt and disregard and even baptized hatred for those that we think are wrong. That's how I feel. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only person in this room that feels that way. But that's what I'm tempted to think sometimes. I preach on this so much because that's our temptation today. That's the thing we're tempted to do sometimes. And frankly, I'm not strong enough to love my enemies. I'm not. I'm not strong enough. I'm not holy enough. And I'm not good enough. I don't have it in me to do that. But Christ in me, the hope of glory, through him I can do all things. Through him who strengthens me, I can do all things. And when we do that, y'all, when we love the ones we're tempted to hate, when we love the ones the world tells us to hate, when we love the ones that we don't want to, that act of love, that act of service, that act of grace, that right there shakes the gates of hell. That is our weapon. That is our tool. That is what we use to defeat the devil and to destroy the works of evil. Is that right there? If we fight the world with the weapons of the world, we lose even if we win. When we fight the world with the weapons of the world, we lose even if we win. But when we fight by the Spirit... When we fight with the power of God, when we fight with the weapons of God, when we fight with love and service and grace and mercy, then Christ is glorified and all men are drawn to our Savior, Christ Jesus. That is the purpose. That is the point. That's why we love our enemies. Because we can't do it on our own. We can't do it. They're our enemies. We don't like them. They think they're better than us. We want to get them. And those are the folks that Christ tells us to love. For when we love them, he is glorified. And lives are changed. And lives are restored. And families are saved. And grace is proclaimed. And the gates of hell are shaken by the power of our resurrected Lord and by the power of his Holy Spirit. So let us be faithful, y'all. Let us surrender our lives completely to the power of Christ. Let us have no unbaptized arms that we keep from him. Let, it, let us give him our all and love him with our all and love even those whom we are tempted to despise. And in doing that, the gospel of Christ is proclaimed to an unbelieving world. And Christ is glorified. Let us pray.